Let me guess where you're living. Someone listening right now, I know for a fact, is listening in Los Angeles, California. That's a fact. Now let me tell you a little something about Los Angeles, California. Number one, it's on fire. Number two, there's no water. Number three, in 60 years, the climate is going to change so much that it is going to feel like the southern tip of Baja, California. And there might be as many people of Mexican heritage in Los Angeles per capita as there are in Baja, California. That might be a change that you see too, but I can't guarantee that one. The one I can guarantee is the climate will change. But welcome to the show. My name's Brandon. This is the state of the universe, the great guest that I have on the show today, Dr. Matt Fitzpatrick. And Dr. Matt Fitzpatrick is an ecologist and he is an associate professor at the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science, working in the Appalachian Laboratory. Dr. Matt Fitzpatrick published a a really interesting study in Nature Communications two months ago. And the study analyzed things called climate analogs. And a climate analog essentially is another geographic location that feels the way your city will feel in, say, 60 years. So what does that mean? Well, that means that pick a city. What do you pick? Detroit, Michigan? In 60 years, the climate will change in Detroit, Michigan. It will feel very different. So how do you compare that? How do you make, how do you say, hey, Mark, what will the climate in Detroit feel like in 60 years? Well, you could say like, oh yeah, it's going to get seven degrees warmer on average, but that's stupid. No one wants to hear that. No one even knows what seven degree difference feels like. But what people do know is comparing it to a different city. So saying something like New York City will feel like Little Rock, Arkansas, you know, in 60 years, Philadelphia will feel like garbage because that's what it is, a garbage city. In 60 years, Rochester, New York will feel like Southern Pennsylvania, you know, and so by doing these sort of climate analog studies, we can all get a sense of what our city will feel like in 60 years or in the long term. And I talked to him about this study. Because it's a really impactful study, and I encourage you, we talk a lot about an interactive map that he built in correspondence with this study, and I'll link that down below in any description, wherever you're watching, and you can click on that, and you can go on, and you can find your city, and you can see what will my city feel like in 60 years, you know? What will, I don't know, Bozeman, Montana feel like in 60 years? What will Seattle, Washington feel like in 60 years? And you can get a sense for how much the climate is going to change in your region. It's very interesting. And I think that it's necessary. Things like this are necessary in order to make people alert, in order to wake people up and say, hey, listen, the climate is going to change drastically, and it's time to start doing something about it. And along those lines, I talked about something else that always interests me when I talk to people who are in the climate field, the climate science field, or at least related to it. And that is discouragement. Do you get discouraged? Do you ever feel like, Man, we're coming up with all this data. We have all of this science backing up our claims. But it just seems like, in terms of a legislative perspective, it's falling on deaf ears. And that's got to suck. And so, with that being said, people... Oh, you know what else I did? After this talk on climate change, I went and I watched the Netflix documentary, Dirty Money. And Dirty Money has a bunch of episodes that, you know, analyze a bunch of companies that screw the human population one way or another. But this one was on Volkswagen. And Volkswagen had this clean diesel scandal. If you don't know what it is, go look up the clean diesel scandal. Essentially, they sold people engines that they claimed did not emit noxious fumes, but they did 
and they hit it and they found a way to scam emissions testing and then they had to recall half a million vehicles in the United States alone and over 11 million engines worldwide. So it's a very interesting thing and it's only fitting that Volkswagen did it because they've been gassing people for, I don't know, since World War II. You know, look up the, look up the history of Volkswagen. Look it up. Look it up. Okay? They were the people's car. Founded in none other than Nazi Germany. So don't buy a Volkswagen. Or do, you know? Or Volkswagen, how's this sound? Sue me for slander. That's an option. You know? But listen, you can't sue me for slander because you did it, right? You did it. So... But also you probably could because who would I, I would have no way to fight you. I wish that when a company would sue you, you would have the option to fist fight their CEO instead. Instead of settling it in court and then you would settle it that way. Because I would beat that old guy, what's his name, Walter White? I would beat his ass, whatever his name is. I don't know, that's not his name. That's a guy who makes meth on a TV show. Ladies and gentlemen, follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram. At Brendan Drackler, my full name, if you don't know how to spell it, go on thestateoftheuniverse.com and click one of those interactive links. Then you don't have to spell it. Subscribe on YouTube. R rate and review the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen, just do it. Dr. Matt Fitzpatrick, first off, sorry if I call you Ryan Fitzpatrick, okay? That would be a Freudian <laughs> slip because... I am a big football fan, and right. I don't know, my brain, every time I talk about having you on the show, for some reason my brain goes, Ryan Fitzpatrick, and even sometimes Ryan Fitzmagic, so if I end up calling you any of those things, I sincerely apologize. How are you doing, man? Thanks for doing this. You bet. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So, something you published something really cool this year. Um, the work you recently published analyzed future what are called climate analogs. And a climate analog, as I understand it, is a way for you to take a city, say Rochester, New York, where I live right now, and identify what other cities have essentially the same climate. And then you can extrapolate into the future, and you can start to ask questions like, in 2080, what cities that exist today will have a climate like Rochester, New York will in 2080? Right? Do I understand that correctly? Yeah. Yep. That's the basic idea. Yep. Okay. So... You also came up with a web application, and the web application, you can go on, and I'll have a link to it in all of the all of the normal places, descriptions on my website, etc. And the web application will allow you to click on your city, most major metropolitan areas you have on there. You have 540, which mm -hmm. we'll talk about how you did that analysis in a minute, but you can go on there, and you can click your city, and you can see what your city will feel like what's what other city your city will feel like in 2080 it's a really cool application and first i'm curious so take me back to the beginning like where mm -hmm. did you get the idea to do this climate analog mapping for a bunch of cities in north america yeah i mean the, you know the idea probably started eight or ten years ago to be honest um and so i don't remember the exact moment but it it started out with me um being interested in, in, in what my expertise is in is more in about um, understanding climate change impacts on natural systems. And in particular, um, I'm interested in what we would call biodiversity hotspots. So these are places on the planet that have um, a lot of species and they're highly threatened. Um, so like, you know, California is considered a, a biodiversity hotspot given 
the plant diversity and animal diversity that's in California. Um, and so what I wanted to do is figure out a way to model the vulnerability of these places to climate change, right? So these, mm -hmm. these biodiversity hotspots. Um, and so I worked on that for a while. And somewhere along the way, I got this idea of, oh, I could do this for cities. And instead of like trying to understand what the impact or vulnerability of biodiversity uh, might be to climate change, it would be, you know, what would climate change be like in these cities? And might that help us communicate um, to the public what these changes mean? So that, that was that was the basic uh, beginning of the idea. And like I said, it was um, it, it was close to 10 years ago now. Yeah. So I'll give people an idea if they if they don't want to go on the website or if they they don't have the ability to I'll give some people the idea of what mm -hmm. some major cities will feel like. So some of the ones that I found shocking were New York City could feel like Arkansas, which would be 8 8ish degrees warmer Fahrenheit and 10% mm -hmm. wetter. Now, first off, there's no two places worse in the United States than Arkansas and New York City. Right? Those are the <laughs> the worst places ever. The shadiest hotel I've ever stayed in is in Arkansas. There were a bunch of holes in the wall, and uh -huh. I got paranoid. I think I'm going to have schizophrenia in like 20 years. I got paranoid, and I started plugging the holes with toilet paper because I was convinced that there could be some form of camera in them. And that's just like how Arkansas is to me. And New York City is much mm -hmm. better. I mean, these are the worst places. But, well, <laughs> Philadelphia, actually. Philadelphia is one of the worst, too. But um, Rochester, where I live now, would feel like southeast Pennsylvania. It would be 8% warmer. Eight degrees warmer, rather, sorry, and 51% wetter. And that is way too close to Philadelphia for me. So I, yeah, I don't yeah. want that in my life. And then LA, this one blew my mind. Los Angeles feels like the southern tip of Baja, California, which would be six degrees warmer. But this isn't the, that's not the part that blew my mind. What blew my mind was how much wetter it would be. 2,000%. Am I, did I read that right? 2,000%? Yeah, it's a bit of an artifact because um, depending on the season you're talking about, Los Angeles is extremely dry. They might right. get a half an inch of rain or uh, or even less during that season. So a small uh, a small increase in precipitation, let's say it goes up to two or four inches, right? You're talking about doubling multiple times. So yes. that, that number is a bit of an artifact for, for Los Angeles. But, that's true, actually. Um, I, I didn't consider that, but that's actually a very good point, yeah. Yeah, you, you add a little bit of rain to a desert, it seems like a huge change. Right, and 2,032% increase of zero is still zero. So Los Angeles, you're still not getting any water. Sorry. Right. Uh, move away. <laughs> That's right. But across the board, U.S. cities are going to start to resemble cities hundreds of miles to the south. That's the consensus that I think, no matter where you look on the interactive map, that seems to be the consensus. The cities will change. They will get hotter. And the heat will make them feel like cities that are now hundreds of miles south of them. That's what right. were you initially thinking when you started to get the data back that you, that you were analyzing? Were you thinking, wow, this blew me away? Or were you thinking, uh, this is kind of what I expected. Now I have to figure out a way to show it to people. No, I mean, you know, I, I've been asked that question a lot. Like, were you surprised or is this what you expected? Um, you know, I think... I suffer from the same sort of problems that people that don't work in this field suffer from in terms of understanding what these impacts mean, right? We often hear um, on the news or scientists saying, you know, uh, in the future, we expect the mean global temperature to be three degrees Fahrenheit warmer, something mm -hmm. like that. I'm like, well, um, 
what is the big deal, right? Like, you know, the daily change in temperature where I live now can be 30 degrees Fahrenheit from, right. from night to day, right? So three degrees, what's the big deal? Um, and so, you know, I'm curious, I was curious, what does that kind of change actually mean for me? Um, but I, I didn't have a good sense. I, you know, from, from the work I do, I knew that changing the mean global temperature of the planet that much is a very large change, but I couldn't translate that into my own life. Mm -hmm. And so as these results started coming back, the first place I looked at was the place I live now, which is Cumberland, Maryland. Um, and I looked and said, oh, crap, Cumberland's going to become like Southern Kentucky. Um, I'm a guy that likes cooler weather. I like mm -hmm. winter. I like skiing, um, all that sort of things. And I was like, gosh, that's a really hot, humid place. And I don't want to live in Southern Kentucky's climate. I, yeah, I want right. to live in the climate I live in now. And no so, one wants yeah, to live in Southern Kentucky. So there's that. Um, and so, yeah, it was shocking. I, I was I was surprised. You know, when, when we actually translate this into something that's more local, that's more psychologically relevant, that three degrees Fahrenheit number um, really hits home. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So that's very true. And one of the things that's so important. In climate science, I think. In fact, I might say the thing that is most important in terms of getting legislation through is finding a way to show the public the results. This is of supreme importance. I don't think it's done enough, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But was the goal always to make the interactive map to show people this is what your city will feel like? Was that was that the, the goal from the get-go? Um... Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I realize that, you know, I guess stepping back a little bit, you know, one of the problems was like, just how do you publish results for 540 cities in, in a typical journal article, right. right? And so we needed a way to show um, all the results for all the cities. Um, and, and what came along with that was, well, anybody that's interested could look. I didn't really anticipate the level of interest that has been generated by it. I mean, one always can dream. Um, so the fact that it's received a lot of attention and lots of people um, have looked at it has been has been really great. So so it worked out much better than I could have ever. Now, what 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 shows have you been on? I, I know Science Friday and were you on like the local news? I was on the Baltimore News, which is relatively local for here. Um, I was on Here and Now with NPR. I was on several local NPR stations. Huh. Uh, Vo Voice of America just did a Russian language uh, piece, which is was interesting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, that's. I think that's. Uh, I don't think I'm forgetting any. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's, there's been a lot of press. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, real. it's very cool, and it seems to be the way in which climate science is done now in the sense that these big climate studies are almost always followed by a lot of press. Does it make it yep. exciting to be a part of it? You feel like a rock star? <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. I feel like a rock star, but um, a lot of the other work that I do is a bit more what I'd call ivory tower, more academic, right? right. That, that one is hard to translate into something that, uh, you know, the general public might care about. Um, and, yeah, so it's nice to do something that one. I, I mean, more than anything, I hope it has has an impact. Um, I'm I'm kind of a private person and all that. Not that I don't enjoy the attention, but um, uh, more than anything, I, I hope it makes a difference. Yeah, and I think it will. And I was mentioning before how these visualizations are important, 
And I think that they're not just important in climate science. I think they're important across the board. And I know a hell of a lot of people who don't care about them. I know tons mm-hmm. of just pure scientists who want to do science for the sake of science. They don't care about communicating the results to a large body of people. And they don't care much about coming up with an elaborate way to do that. Do you encounter that? Do you encounter people in in your line of work who say, eh, this is an interesting study. Let's put, publish it in Nature and, and move on. Why, why bother creating this interactive map? Yeah, I y- yes and no. I mean, I think that's changing more and more because the funders are forcing us to, to mm. um, you know, if we want to be funded by organizations like the National Science Foundation, um, you know, they, they evaluate your science in two ways. They evaluate it on the basic science aspect and they mm-hmm. evaluate it on what they call broader impacts. Right. And so, and those are, those are weighted equally. So if you, if you don't address like, the broader impact side, which might be communicating or, or educating or mm-hmm. somehow working with the public or et cetera, you're not going to get funded. And so, um, you know, I, I think, I think it's changing for that reason, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I enjoy, I enjoy the idea, like data visualization is something I really enjoy. It's, it's kind of the art of the science in some uh-huh. ways that you, here you get to, to, um, use more than just, you know, calculations. You have to think about, how well does this look? How will people perceive it? So, exactly. you know, I, I enjoy that. If yeah. you could quantify, how long do you think it took you to do the research versus how long did it take you to make the visualization tool? Well, I mean, it's funny because this was a side project. I had very little funding to do this. Um, you know, I wasn't funded by large agencies. So some of the techniques that I used, um, I also worked on for another NSF project. But, you know, I worked on and off on this project literally for years. I mean, it, it was, it was probably, like I said at the beginning, you know, probably eight years on and mm-hmm. off until I got close enough to being done. I'm like, I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to finish this. Um, the visualization, um, you know, it surprisingly um, did not take that long. Um, I mean, we certainly worked on it for a long time, but if, you know, for, think if we just sat down start to finish the tools that are available now, um, open source tools, et cetera, to uh, build something like that, make it easy enough that someone like me can do it. Um, because I, I wouldn't consider myself a computer scientist or an exceptionally strong programmer. Um, but we were able to put that together relatively quickly. Yeah. Do, are there? Did you have people in, in close confines to you that didn't really understand the usefulness in putting it together? And more importantly, do you think that it helped? Do you think that your work would have had the same impact had you not created that? The app, you mean? Yeah. Um, I don't. Well, I, I would, I would like to say no, but as a scientist, I would also have to say I don't have any evidence Naturally. to back that claim up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's one of the things that we're trying to do going forward now. I'm working with a colleague. Uh, she does a lot of um, a lot of what she does is uh, uh, science education and the uh, evaluating how effective different communication tools are. And so mm-hmm. we're hoping to, to actually do some testing with the app to see um, how do people respond to it and whether we can uh, get some funding to do a more formal study in that way. So um, I'll tell you this, you know, if I didn't publish it in an open access journal um, that has the reach that Nature Communications has, you know, it would have been like, 
a lot of work that's just a drop in the pond and then there's no ripples and it disappears and, and it doesn't get noticed. Um, you know, you bring up something interesting that, that scientists often don't consider, I think. Marketing your work. When I release a podcast, I go crazy. I market it everywhere. Mm-hmm. I'm on Reddit. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm sharing it everywhere. You know, I'm, I'm making sure that people, not just people I know, but, but people outside of my, my circle know that this thing is here. And so that way mm-hmm. I can bring in new people. I can put new eyes on it. That's not necessarily done in science. I never see no. anyone really marketing their work, at least not in my field. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely know individuals that are better than that than others. But, you know, as a whole, I think a lot of scientists, um, you know, I hate to use generalizations, but, you know, we tend to be introverts. We tend to like doing our own thing. And like, you know, what what might be seen as self-promotion uh, isn't something a lot of us are comfortable with. Um, but, you know, again, even over the, 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 the decade that I've been been a professional scientist, um, there's definitely been a push to have a press office much more engaged in getting press releases out when studies come out. Um, that when I first started, I didn't see that happening as much. So, um, you know, we now have people working in social media and all these places to try to get all this out. And, you know, some of it sticks and some of it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't do it, you're definitely not going to get the attention. So, yeah, it's something that, that I, I like to see moving in that direction because I, you know, one of the best ways to get people to stop denying science is to, to show it, to visualize it, mm-hmm. to show people what these scientists are doing, how cool it is, and to explain to them the methodology so they understand, right? So much science denialism is born of not understanding, is born of ignorance. And I, I think, think that that can be combated. I, I, I guess I disagree to some extent. Okay. I, I, think, I think, I think you're right. I think there is a group of people that I wouldn't group with deniers. I, I, I would call the group that you're talking about people that um, maybe haven't had the exposure, mm-hmm. uh, haven't thought about it, um, hasn't been communicated to, in a way that they can, can um, relate to um, for whatever reason. And so, you know, I see those people as having an open mind and they're given the information and they, and then they can make a, a logical, reasonable decision based on, on that. The group I, I, you know, I would lump with deniers are uh, people that no, ma- no amount of evidence would change their mind. Um, and so I just see those people as a lost cause. Um, it doesn't matter how we communicate. It doesn't matter what we tell them. Um, there's nothing that will change their mind. They're, they're sort of cemented in place. And I think we just need to leave those people alone <laughs> and not waste our time. Uh, trying to convert the uh, the unconvertible, if that's a word. But. That's fair. It's fair, and I don't disagree. I think that, that it's right, and I think a lot of it is born out of political ideology. I often wonder this. I, I wonder, academia leans left. Okay, many studies have been done on this. It's not necessarily a purposeful bias. It's not like academia is shoving people on the right out, but it just so happens that over the past 100 years, Academia has leaned left. It has been more liberal, and and I guess for good reason, right? In the true sense of the word liberal, not in like the... There is some colleges who who take on the archetypal, like, liberal liberal, and that that's not necessarily good, like shutting down speech and, like, that sort of thing. Um, but when we talk about college in general, it tends to lean left. And I wonder if that disparity is the reason that you see a lot of 
political right-leaning people, like Donald Trump's a good example, who outright deny certain science. And climate change is one of those big ones. It's one of those right. ones that is heavily denied by people in Donald Trump's circle. And he, I'm not I'm not trying to point the finger. He's not the only one. He's just like, you know, the the the, the center. He's easy to point a finger at, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's a very, very vocal and um, public figure. So he's kind of a big target in that way. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I, I think, you know, if, if I'm trying to be the best person I can, I would say everyone has a perspective um, and to best understand, uh, you know, or have the conversation, you need to first understand their perspective mm -hmm. and where they're coming from or whatever. But I think that breaks down when people aren't playing fair, right? right. Like, um, I, I think I approach a problem with, you know, trying to be reasonable, trying to be logical to look at the evidence and then make the best conclusion uh, we can based on that. And I don't, I feel that like people coming very strongly from the denial side aren't playing fair, right? They, they, they will ignore facts they will will twist uncertainty or they'll make uncertainty much, much larger than it is. Um, you know, it, it may be one example. And, uh, you know, trying to think about, like, would they feel the same way if they were faced with, like, a medical crisis, right? Like, mm -hmm. if, if they had, they went to the, they weren't feeling well, they went to the doctor uh, and the doctor said, you know, you, you have a problem with your heart or what have you, we need, we need to, uh, to uh, operate on you to save your life. And they go for, you know, 99 other opinions, right? And, and 99 doctors who are all heart surgeons all say, say the same thing, like, yeah, you know, you need this surgery to survive, what have you. And then they go to a chiropractor and the chiropractor's like, no, you're fine. Don't worry about your heart. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the kind of denial we're talking about here. Like, I don't think those people faced with that same level of, of certainty would say, you know what? I'm fine. I don't need the heart surgery. These 99 people are all lying to me. Um, but nonetheless, that's the way they go about this because, um, for reasons I don't understand, you know, going back to this idea of trying to see it from their perspective, I, I can't, right. I can't see it from their perspective. Yes. And there's this, uh, so many times when climate change gets brought up, I hear the 97% statistic, 97% of people agree. Well, what about the other three? For your example, it would literally be like, if 97 doctors told you you need the heart surgery, another one, the the 98th, told you you should eat more oregano, the 99th told you you need to crack your knuckles more, and the 100th told you that it has to do with Mercury's retrograde orbit. Like, it's right. not like the the 3% even has a consensus, right? This is one of the problems. It's not like the 3% is like, wait, 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 we have undeniable evidence over here. No, it's a hodgepodge right. of random ideas based on faulty data. And that needs to be communicated. Yep. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, people often say, well, in the 70s, scientists were all saying that we're, the planet was going to cool, right? That's often used as like an argument against uh, this consensus. But if, if you look back at that, that actual time period, it was a very small group of scientists that were saying this. There wasn't a broad consensus in the scientific community. There wasn't the level of consensus there is now. And so it's it's really false equivalence in that, that case. I'm glad you brought that up because I actually do have some people. I know someone who is – I don't think they listen to this, so maybe I'm safe to say this – who is far into academia, far in. They've been in academia for 60 years. They're a physicist, and they often bring that up. 
they bring that so you know there's even people within the confines of science that can be tricked by these these false flags if you will it tends to be physicists for some reason too yeah because we suck <laughs> that's why <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I've done some battle in editorial pages of a local newspaper with a uh, MIT-educated physicist that will spew the biggest nonsense in the world about carbon dioxide and climate change, et cetera. And of course, he has PhD in MIT behind his name, uh, so people take him seriously, but he has zero idea what he's talking about. His, his expertise is in, if I remember correctly, it's like superconductor uh, physics. Um, which, you know, doesn't make him an expert on, on climate, but nonetheless, right. it doesn't this is, su- this is, this is an important thing you bring up because this is something that isn't realized by people. People tend to think that the PhD next to your name means you're a genius and you have information on everything. But in, in actuality, I don't know if you've ever seen these infographics. I love these things where it's like human knowledge is a circle. And when you get your PhD, it's just like a pinprick off of the circle, like this little bit of extra knowledge, you know, off the, off the edge of a circle. It doesn't encompass any more than the the specialty mm-hmm. that you spent five years delving into. Um, so, That's right. so the you know the PhD in in mechanical engineering doesn't make you an expert on climate change any more than you know some local guy at Starbucks. Now, that's not to say that you can't read and you can't be knowledgeable and you can't know. But but I'm saying that in terms of like just giving credence based on credentials, you can't do that. That doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so. You have an option in your interactive in your interactive tool to visualize reduced emissions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, recently, the U.S.—I guess not recently anymore—time flies. We dropped out of the Paris Climate Accord, right? We're like one of the only major countries in the world. Is that a lie? No, I think we are the only country in the world at this point. Yes. So we dropped out. We essentially say, "Eh, who cares about emissions?" In 2018, global carbon emissions were higher than any other year from human beings, right? right? Mm-hmm. So what does reduced emissions mean in your work? And and we'll talk about whether or not it's even attainable at this point. So, um, you know, the, the IPCC, when they, every several years, when they produce these reports, they have these large modeling uh, component that goes on. And there's, there's, there's teams from all over the world that are working on their their climate model that's making projections about the future. And, and to run those models, they need to force them with uh, some scenarios regarding how emissions are going to uh, uh, the, the rates of emissions into the future, that sort right. of thing, and how, how the climate system responds to those. Um, and so there's a couple of these scenarios, um, and uh, they're called, what are they? It's a Representative Concentration Pathways, RCPs. Um, and so in the, in the uh, study that we published, we used two of these RCPs. One is called um, RCP 8.5, which in essence assumes a worst case scenario, which we're exceeding right now. So like we are on path or exceeding RCP 8.5 right now. Uh, that's the default that, the, mm-hmm. that you see in the app. The reduced emissions assumes that policies and actions are put into place to reduce emissions. And so this is roughly in line with with the Paris Climate Accord. Not exactly, but in that scenario, like under under the 8.5, rates of emissions stay the same through time. Uh, We don't do anything to to curb them, really. Uh, RCP 4.5, this reduced emissions, assumes 
emissions increase until 2040 and they decline thereafter. Um, and so, you know, we would be doing things like, um, in essence, reducing greenhouse gas emissions through uh, choices we make in power generation, mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, so I had <clears throat> Dr. Stephen Pakala on the show. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but yeah, but, I know. Yeah. Okay. And we discussed carbon capture initiatives, which is one of the things that he's very interested in. And according to him, you know, we have some technologies that will become feasible with subsidies. They'll become feasible, but it's, we're still a long way off. And so carbon capture initiatives are failing, not failing in the long term, but failing right now. They're not going to be able to solve our problem. Curbing emissions in terms of legislation is failing. Do you get discouraged? Do you get like a little sad? Yeah, I do get discouraged. I mean, I get discouraged too because uh, although I am strongly against the decision to withdraw from the Paris <clears throat> Climate Accord, um, it doesn't seem like those sorts of accords have a lot of teeth. And, and I, I guess I should back up and say I'm not an expert in the Paris Climate Accord. What I know about it is probably what the same that you know about it, that mm -hmm. you've read uh, in media and stuff. It's not something that I've delved into with any sort of depth. Me but, um, you know, this is a global problem. It needs a global solution. Um, it, it's a problem that uh, is the kind of one of the hardest ones for us to solve, given the human capacity to focus only on the present or maybe a little bit into the future, but to think far into the future is a challenge for us and all of that. Um, but yeah, I, I do get discouraged. Um, but I am also encouraged because even though we're, you know, even though as a nation, we have initiated the process to withdraw, we haven't withdrawn yet. Um, there are still a lot of actions at the more local level where people are saying, well, we're still going for this. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the nation may not be, but, you know, I live in Maryland. Uh, we have a Republican governor. Um, he's very much on board with reducing emissions. Um, and this is true of, of lots of uh, governors, uh, heads of institutions and things like that. So um, I'm hoping that this is just a very small blip in the road um, and that we start making uh, real changes to, to address the problem that I think um, – you know, it would be a benefit to everybody, but um, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, sometimes when I'm like stuck in traffic on my way to work or on my way home, I get a little discouraged. I'm like, man, I just don't, I can't, like it's such a tough problem to even wrap your head around to begin to solve, to tell people to curb their emissions somehow, and you have to explain the ways in which they can do that, and I know you have to take baby steps, but, you know, even me on the outside looking in, like I, I just get a little bit like, well, Earth, sorry, but I don't know what we can do. Yeah, no, it's it's a major major problem that requires a policy intervention uh, that forces us to make different choices. Um, you know, it is possible to generate a lot more power from solar and wind than we're currently doing. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that that those technologies don't have their own uh, adverse. Uh, impacts as well um, but it's not it's not hopeless it's just it's just going to take to take time I think and you know there's things that we don't want to talk about um, like nuclear power right I mm -hmm. mean that is a largely carbon free uh, 
source of energy generation, but it comes with this 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 risk. Even though it's a very low, it's a very low risk but very high impact uh, failure mm-hmm. that, that could occur there. Um, and then there's human population growth that we don't talk about a lot. That um, yes. we could address this problem by reducing human population growth, and, and that would have a whole lot of of other secondary benefits um, for in terms of just environmental concerns. Uh, so there, there's that as well. Um, but we don't, we don't hear that, that talked about very often either. Right. So your model, like any good model, it is simplified, right? It obviously you can't, you can't like set up a little universe where you have the earth rotating around the sun and you have all the humans doing the things that they do. So you, you have to be a little simplified in, in the way that you do the model. Things like humidity, natural disasters, atmospheric changes, would they exacerbate? What how does that? What is that word? Would they amplify? Let's do that. Let's do amplify. Okay, I don't want that other word. There's too many X's and yeah, C's yeah. and stuff going. On. Would these other effects amplify the problem? In other words, is the work that you're putting out essentially like a best case scenario? Well, it's conservative in several ways. I mean, you know, what the what the the do- the default of what the app shows you is the mean mm-hmm. of the high emission scenario that we're currently on. But we actually ran 27 different climate models for each of these two emission scenarios. Um, and so you can look at the variability across right. those. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we didn't include is like heat island effects, right? Anybody that's uh, been in downtown of a large city on a hot summer day and then is driven out to the countryside Typically, you realize several degrees cooler when you get outside of the hit, the city where the, the buildings are absorbing and releasing heat. So we didn't include any of those um, in these calculations. We didn't include sea level rise. Um, we didn't think about heat index, which is the combination of humidity and temperature um, and all of that. So, yeah, in a lot of ways, the changes that we are showing uh, for cities themselves are probably conservative. Hmm. One of the interesting things that I got when I talked to many people in this in this field, most recently Stephen Pakala, and mm-hmm. um, one of the the interesting things is that even if you could stop emissions today, right, you could shut them off, even if you right. had a way to do that, the impacts and your 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 work even shows this, right? If you look at your work in the interactive tool in lower in the in the lowering emissions sort of way, you still see changes over the next sixty years. Right. The, the damage that we've done already will have an impact. Right. So that's another yep. thing that almost discourages me a little bit. It's like, well, God damn it. What can we do? It's like, I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm nihilistic, too nihilistic sometimes, but, but that's how I feel sometimes. I'm like, I just feel like, man, we've done too much. We get, it's like we're failing this class and it's, it's almost the drop ad period and we just need to drop it. We need to, you know, to, and I'm not saying we give up on climate, but I'm just saying, like, right. you know, how I feel sometimes. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, we have committed ourselves to changes that will, uh, even if we stopped, you know, reduced emissions today to, to some much lower level, we've committed ourselves to uh, changes on the scale of decades to centuries that will play themselves out. Um, and that's just the nature of, of, the, of the physics, right? It's just, mm-hmm. it's a big system and it responds slowly and, yep. and all that, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, but... Um, yeah, I, I don't, I, 
you, you did say we didn't want to give up on climate, so I hope we don't drop the class. There, I mean, there's there's still things we can do, right? So there's the number that's been in the media a fair amount recently about we have 12 years mm-hmm. to fix this problem. And and if you look at where that number comes from, it's you know it's it's looking at the rate of of change in temp of global mean temperature over the past several decades and extrapolating that out right. to where we hit hit this this threshold of of 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius mm-hmm. mean change in global temperature that's that's considered uh, really bad if we go beyond that. So that's why you know it's like oh we have 12 years to address this before it's too late. Um, the, the the idea there is that we want to try to uh, get this under control before it's completely out of our control. Right. By that I mean we could have natural systems that have that are going to then start feeding back into the climate system. Like if we warm up the Arctic enough, um, there's a lot of plant material that's that is not decomposed. Right, it's in permafrost. It's kind of sitting there in the freezer. And if we open the lid of the freezer, that's all going to decompose, and it's going to produce massive amounts of carbon that's going to go into the mm-hmm. atmosphere, regardless of the emissions that, that we're pumping in. And so the hope is to try to prevent those kinds of events from happening because once that starts, there's nothing we can do aside from carbon capture, et cetera, to, to get that issue under control. Right. So something else that you are interested in, well, actually, your job, you're an ecologist, mm-hmm. right? You're not yep. inherently you know, in the climate science community in the sense that you're not a climate scientist. Am I right in saying that? So I think that you're more interested in how climate change can affect biodiversity, can impact biodiversity. How will not only humans, but but life on this planet in general respond to changing climates? Right. What are the things... Well, first off, how do you even study this? Like, you know, I've seen some of the the work that's being put out on various platforms that you're a part of. Mm-hmm. And and one of the ways in which you do it is you you learn about what has happened in the past, how animals and plants have reacted in the past to changing climates and you extrapolate that forward. How do you how do you do this process? Can you explain it to me? Yeah, the basic idea is um, and you're right. This that, that is my area of primary interest and that's that's what I work on most of the time is understanding uh how biodiversity might be impacted or respond or is vulnerable to climate change. Um the basic idea is that you know we can look at where organisms live today, right? You mm-hmm. can go out and and go to every, you know, pick your organism of interest and and find where it occurs on the planet and then we can say, well what what climate does this organism tend to find itself in, right? I mean, you think of polar bears, there's a very obvious place, right? They, they occur in cold, very cold places. Um, pick another species in the tropics, they like warm, humid places. And so once we know that relationship between where uh, we see these species and the climate that they tend to occur in, we can then do the same thing that I did with this uh, urban analysis to say, well, where do we expect them to be in the future? Um, you know, cities are are in place. They don't move, but organisms, they can move to get to the climates that they prefer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when we look to the past, we see this, right? Um, especially in Eastern North America during the last ice age, uh, forests migrated to the south as the ice sheets uh, grew and came south. As the planet warmed again, the forest migrated north. And so we see these you know, we think of bird migrations, which are seasonal, right? Every spring and every mm-hmm. fall, we see birds coming and going. 
Well, trees do the same thing. They just do it on, you know, on the scale of centuries or millennia, that they're migrating north and south in response to these cooling and warming trends. Um, so that's the basic idea. You know, we're, we're, um, we're basically looking at correlations between where organisms are and the climate, and we're extrapolating those into the future. Um, and maybe to get just a bit technical for a second, um, you know, it is the ultimate correlation causation problem where we're mm-hmm. looking at these correlations. Uh, we don't know how causal they are. So a lot of the work I do um, tries to address that question by using the past. Like, can we project, can we predict what happened in the past given what we see today? And if so, does that help us predict the future kind of idea? Hmm. Yeah. That's always a problem in science, right? I, this is actually a big problem right now in the machine learning world. You know, mm-hmm. machine learning is such a great tool and so many people are using it on such wealth of data where we're in the age of big data and we have these huge petabytes of data just sitting around on supercomputers to be analyzed. And we're utilizing machine learning to do a lot of it or artificial intelligence. And mm-hmm. one of the issues is that it gives you correlations. It doesn't necessarily give you causations. And so this is something you have right. to be really careful with because I recently read an article that analyzed some machine learning findings and found that that there's no causal relationship underlying the things that they find they're merely putting things into bins and saying oh this thing you know this is yellow and this is yellow this is green and this is green but but you know you you really have to be careful about that and so i think that the way you approach this is a really good idea you try to predict well you try to make your model predict the past right because that's That's something that you can measure against you can determine whether or not you're right or wrong and then you can go forward, and that, that's a good scientific method. And I, I hope anyone who's, who's listening can, can learn from, from doing science that way. Now, we already see examples of the way that, that biodiversity is affected. You mentioned polar bears, right? That's like, the, that's like the figurehead. Polar bears starving, unable to swim from iceberg to iceberg, you know. But there's, there's other ones, like uh, sea turtles. Sea turtles are being impacted. You know, see, this is interesting. Sea turtles are being impacted by something else, too. Do you watch Planet Earth? This TV um, show? I have. I have, yeah. Greatest show ever made. I'll say that right now. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, in that, they do an episode, and in the episode, they, they talk about sea turtles and the way they're affected by light pollution. Yeah. This, have you seen this? This is yeah. very interesting. Sea turtles, I think... They are meant to, you know, travel towards the light of the moon in order to find their way yep. to the sea. But because you're building large cities on the coast, you're having sea turtles who, you know, are crawling towards the buildings instead of towards the sea. And many, many, many of them are, are being impacted by that. Now, yeah, there's also... You know, what, yeah, ahead, sorry. Yeah. You go. I was just going to say there's... there's um, sea turtles are very good, like, poster child, if you will, for this problem. But we're discovering that light pollution, um, it could be one of the most underappreciated impacts to, to organisms that rely on the moon for migration. Like we're finding that it is dramatically altering the behavior of, of migrating birds mm-hmm. and insects um, to a point that we didn't previously understand, but it's, it's, it's interesting and forthcoming science. Yeah, it's very interesting. And if you have any insights, feel free to share. I, I just did a show on the importance of the moon for humans, the way that, that humans have historically utilized the moon. And animals do. Animals are also, birds in particular, are, are impacted by cell phone towers. And bees, too, are impacted by electromagnetic signals that, that you're spewing out of cell phone towers. And 
I think you can find these instances of birds like flying in circles around cell phone towers in, in weird ways for a long period of time. And there seems to be no, you know, reason for them doing that other than the fact that you're confusing biological signals inside of them. Um, moose are another example. Moose are migrating north because ticks are around more in the winter now. Ticks can survive the, the slightly higher temperatures and, and moose are, you know, getting out of there because they, they, they want to avoid these ticks. Um, another example, I was in Bar Harbor, Maine. Yep. Last summer. And when I was in Bar Harbor, Maine, I, I, whenever I go somewhere, I, I travel a lot. Whenever I go, I try to do something that's sciencey. So in this case, I went out on a lobster fishing tour. I wanted to learn how they catch lobsters, what they determine a good lobster is, um, what they throw back, how they do it. And so I went on this lobster tour, and and there was some tour guide there who who worked for the federal government, and. She was talking about lobster migration patterns and how it's being affected by climate change. And lobsters used to be caught off of Cape Cod in, in the droves, right? They were all over during a certain time of the year. Now there seems to be none. They're all moving north. So recently, like the past two years, Maine, so I think 2016, 2017, Maine was seeing this huge boom in lobster fishing. Like they had some of the most fruitful years ever. They made more money right. than ever. This is a half a billion dollar industry just in Maine alone, mm-hmm. which is crazy. But in 2018, all of a sudden, they weren't catching much. The the number the profits dipped. And the reason is that even the waters off of Maine are a little bit too warm. So the lobsters are moving north into the Canadian coast. So this is one of the the interesting areas that that literally impacts the coast of Bar Harbor a mil, hundreds of millions of dollars in some instances. Right? So the effects are big. So with these yep. big effects, I think what will happen over time is you'll have more and more people begin to be impacted. Do you know what the have you uh, seen the Yale Climate Survey? Yeah, yeah, yes, I have. It's been I, a while. I wouldn't be able to speak to it. But. I love this thing. Okay, I, I I don't don't worry about speaking to it. I I'll, I'll read you some some instances or some some facts. What I notice mm-hmm. is that the coast seems to be on board. Now this could be to two reasons. Number one, it could be to political ideology. Right. Typically the coast, the coastal large cities are, are populated by, by more left leaning people, um, than the middle of the country. I don't think anyone would disagree with that assessment, but the coast seems to be on board with, with climate science. You know, the numbers are like in the 80%. 80% of people in these regions say climate change is happening. It's going to impact us. We have to do something about it. But the middle of the country is lacking. Like not a lot of people are on board. And I think that the reason simply comes down to whether or not you've seen an impact yet, whether or not it has adversely affected your life. What do you think about that? Yeah, but yeah, I, I think that that's true. And of course, the, the Midwest is now dealing with these catastrophic floods mm-hmm. um, that that may or may not be, you know, a climate change related, it's certainly a climate event. Um, you know, I've also, and I, again, I'm not going to get the numbers right here, but you know, I think if we look before uh, President Barack Obama was elected, the number of Republicans that, um, you know, would espouse a belief in climate change and that it's caused by humans was much larger before he took a- a- office than after. Right. So he, he kind of mm-hmm. made that an issue. And suddenly it was coming from from a, a Democratic president. And a, a lot of people changed their minds about um, 
you know, in essence, the base, they're going along with the base there, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're kind of going with what's, what the base believes in, in that way. So, um, yeah, I think there's lots of reasons. Um, you know, people talk about, well, how are we going to pay for uh, what it would cost to, to deal with climate change? Well, we, you know, we're already paying for climate change in mm-hmm. lots of ways. Um, property values in low-lying coastal uh, areas are going down. Um, extreme events, all these sorts of things, agricultural failures, forest fires, um, those, those all cost money as well. Right. So it's a, it's a very good point. It's a very good point is we, you know, there comes a point, and I don't know when the tipping point is going to be, but there is going to come a point where we're going to say, all right, climate change is impacting this country more than any other problem. And, and it's time, it's time to make a conceited effort. And I hope that that happens soon. I really, I hope it happens soon. I want to go back to the ecologist in you because I, I have yeah. a, a question. If, let's say you're studying, what's a tree or, or uh, some form of foliage that you, you study? Uh, as an well, I study po- poplar trees. That, that's one example. Okay, so what have you found as it pertains to poplar trees and climate change? Um, well, you know, trees, I, I could speak to trees broadly in that question. I mean, one of the, the um, you know, I talked about these tree migrations that occur, mm-hmm. right? Th- those occur over timescales longer than my life. So that's not something right. we observe that directly. Um, but one of the things we can observe very directly are changes in what we call phenology, right? So phenology is a fancy word for the timing of events when natural events occur. The most common example is, is going to be happening here very soon in the spring, right? We see leaves coming out, we see flowers blooming. We see birds arriving. Those and are all ecological events. So happy! I can't even <laughs> characterize how happy I am. This winter was death for me. So bad. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Continue. No, no, no. I, I'm always very excited to see the, the leaves changing or coming out. Um, and so the biggest, you know, one of the most visual changes that we see is the variability on an annual basis when trees put their leaves out, right? If we have, a, if we have a, a warm spring, the leaves come out sooner. We have a cold spring, the leaves come out later, etc. Um, and so people are, might think, well, what's the big deal? Well, um, if birds are showing up and the leaves have already been out for a certain period of time, or they show up and the leaves aren't out, that can have large impacts on bird populations. Um, and there, there are other other effects too, right? If we have a very warm spring, the leaves come out, and then we have a late hard frost that can kill the existing vegetation. It can it can impact fruit crops. It can uh, impact non-fruit crops. All sorts of things like that. So, um, one of the things that that we study in my lab is um, trying to understand the drivers of phenology and and how changes in those patterns might might kind of cascade down, if you will, into other systems. One of the interesting things, and the reason I had you talk about this. Is because I wonder in the in the in this sort of realm of research, how do you react? Like if you if you determine that that climate change is going to impact, say, a population of poplar trees, what is the reaction? Right? How can you how can you stop it? Other than stopping the climate change itself, like what can be done? It almost seems like it almost seems you know this is where it gets really depressing because it's like okay you learn. You predict the model. The model says poplar trees are going to die, um, you know, f- further yeah. north they're going to die. What do you do? How do you fix it? Well, yeah, I mean, there's um, 
that's that's a great question. I mean, there are definitely some things that can be done depending on the specific problem. I mean, there's a lot of talk about what's known as assisted migration. So, in essence, moving organisms to places where um, they will uh, be more suited to survive, mm-hmm. to try to prevent extinction and that sort of thing. I mean, forest managers, right, if they know that um, a certain species of tree might be lost, I mean, maybe they harvest that tree and leave other trees in place. Uh, you know, there's things like that that can be done. Um, and I guess, you know, now would be a good point to to bring up the problem that, you know, it's not just climate change that's the problem here. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, organisms can respond to the variation in climate. They often respond by moving. But we've chopped the landscape up, right? We've put highways everywhere. We've put neighborhoods everywhere. So the ability of organisms to respond through dispersal or, or migration has been greatly reduced. Um, so, you know, one of the major things that's, that's debated and discussed is this idea of, of assisted migration. Um, do, we, do we move things across the highway, so to speak, um, yeah. so that where they need to be? See, this, but, this idea that, that, you know, animals have been impacted by us moving, moving essentially onto their land and then building structures is interesting. And it's interesting to me also to see their ability to adapt because I have – Deer. I live in Rochester, New York. Okay. There's a million people in the metropolitan area here. Mm-hmm. Yet I will drive to the store, the local grocery store, you know, driving through tons of traffic and right alongside the road will be a bunch of deer just eating grass. They're perfectly fine. They don't seem to mind at all. Right. right. They, and th- surprisingly, they don't get hit by cars a lot. They seem to have figured it out. They lost a few probably in, in the beginning of cars. You know, a few of them went down and then they learned don't go on the road. You know, we have geese right. here. We have uh, Canadian geese that, that come in every spring in, in droves. And they figured out a way to cross the re- the road by walking. They they send out the biggest, the largest one first so that if you hit him, you get a damaged car. And they figure that out. <laughs> so he, he walks out. And then all the other small ones follow. And you have this train of geese crossing the road, busy streets. And the most amazing part is that humans don't seem to mind. I was thinking about this the other day. Imagine if a human did that. Like if there was right. a, a flock of humans in the road, oh, they would be getting run over. We would hit them. You know, we would right. take them out. But these geese, for some reason, we don't mind the geese. So it's an interesting way in which even in a change in climate, the the power of evolution, the power of, of the abilities to adapt or the animals to adapt is is interesting. They They seem yeah. to adapt to changing environments very well. And I think humans will too. And when I think about that, that's one of the reasons what that's one of the times I'm not so nihilistic. And I'm like, yeah, the climate's going to change. We did a lot of damage. We had to do that damage because if we didn't do the damage, we wouldn't have got to where we are today. We can't learn unless we make mistakes. So when I when I shed the nihilism and I bring that back and I think about how we can probably adapt and we can overcome this obstacle makes me a little happy. So geese crossing the road, they, they just cheer me up, I guess. Well, with any with any change, there are winners and losers, right? And some species yes. are much more adaptable than others. White-tailed deer happen to be, uh, uh, you know, when when the eastern part of the U.S. was entirely forested, I'm sure there was much fewer deer than there are today, right? They're an edge species. They like disturbance. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't like deep, thick forests, and so they're they're benefiting from us planting uh, landscaping and and chopping down the forests all over the place. But in terms of humans being adaptable, I mean, ap- absolutely. Um, we're adaptable in, in, in many ways, but like who wants to live in a world where New York city is as hot as, as Mississippi or Arkansas. Nobody. Um, 
who wants to live in a world where there are seawalls around much of New York that have to be, you know, tens of feet high to prevent, uh, uh, you know, the sea from coming <laughs> and flooding? Uh, who wants to live in a world where we can't uh, grow uh, plants in the Midwest anymore because it's too hot and too dry? Uh, you know, in, in the U.S., we're lucky, right? We're a wealthy country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of infrastructure. Um, we're relatively buffered from these changes. But in a lot of countries, they don't they don't have the same level of infrastructure. And it's good. Those people are going to bear a lot of the burden for these these changes that are already underfoot. Yeah, that's one of the things that isn't appreciated. I saw, I saw a, um, a video of there's certain parts of the world where garbage tends to wash up because of the way the ocean currents work. So you could throw, you know, a, a candy bar in the ocean, and chances are you can predict some of the places it's going to end up based on ocean currents. And most of the places that our garbage tends to end up is very poor, very poor, poor places, islands or, or coastal nations that are just incredibly poor. And they don't have the ability to clean up. So there's these beaches that are just covered in trash. Just completely covered in shit that you couldn't ever imagine cleaning up. And I see people constantly on, you know, social media. Which social media is the dirt worst, okay, for this sort of thing. But (laughs) see people constantly who are like, why are we helping them clean that up? That's their garbage. That's their problem. That's one of the things we have to overcome. We have to realize that there's certain things that it, the problem doesn't belong to the country. The problem belongs to humanity. And at the end of the day, I mean, the borders are made up. They're imaginary. They used to help us. You know, you can look at places like North Sentinel Island where that, that uncontacted tribe lives. And you can see that it, it, it is in our nature to defend our borders. That's a thing that's built into us. We do it because... You know, I don't know if you're familiar with North Sentinel Island, are you? No, it sounds familiar, but I'm drawing a blank on the, where it the is. Christian, in my there, was, there was a Christian oh. missionary that went there, yeah, and he, he wanted yeah, to yeah. You know, convert this tribe that doesn't even speak any languages that we know of, um, and he got killed. And th- there's a fundamental reason for that, is it's important to protect your borders, but there comes a time when we're evolved enough and we understand the world enough that we can say, okay, Let's not worry about the border right now. You know, sure, protect it. Don't let everyone flow in. But there comes a point where we got to say, we got to focus on this human problem. This isn't an American problem. This isn't a Canadian problem. This isn't a Europe problem. This isn't any problem except for human beings. We're not going to Mars anytime soon. We're not terraforming Venus anytime soon. So you got to mm-hmm. do something. And the something involves addressing the changing climate. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're... I think the U.S. is something about 5% of the world's population, but we produce over 20% of the carbon emissions. Um, so before we start pointing fingers at other nations, I think we need to, to clean our own house, if you will. That's true. Yep. And then you have China, which I'm pretty sure they've found a way to run cars on coal. They use coal for everything. <laughs> yep. I, yeah, just learned yeah. recently, I just learned recently how bad cruise ships are. I had yeah. no clue. Cruise ships do put out enough particulate emission that it's like a small city, you know. Oh yeah, you, you have ten thousand people packed onto this thing and it's running twenty four twenty four seven. I didn't realize. I never thought about it, and I was like, "Oh my god, it's 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 insane." I'm a bit interested though in your scientific career. You have an undergraduate mm-hmm. degree in mechanical engineering, and you transition to ecology. Explain that to me. How did that work? Yeah. 
Uh, right. So my undergrad um, was in mechanical engineering. Um, I was I was very interested in the kid in, as a kid, not only in the natural world, but in in how things worked. I was really interested in air airplanes and aerospace and rockets and astronomy and all those sorts of things. And so uh, I went and got an engineering degree. Um, you know, largely because that was what was familiar um, to me. You know, my 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 father was in construction, very handy guy. Um, the idea of being a scientist seemed really foreign. I didn't, I don't know that I'd ever even met a scientist, and there were certainly none in my family um, on either side. And so, you know, you tend to go in the direction that's familiar, and that's what I did. Um, and so I, I worked for a few years uh, in aerospace um, and realized, geez, I, I, this is great and all, but I'm, it's not very rewarding. It's, it's not... Um, just not doing it for me. And I left, you know, I left a very good engineering career to, to move to Montana and, and go back to grad school to do ecology. Um, and, and, you know, it was, it was definitely a, a hurdle getting over the sort of um, uh, insecurity about embarking on uh, an, an unfamiliar path that I didn't really have any role models I could look to or talk to, to, to help me navigate. Um, and, you know, there's just the financial aspect of, of graduate school yes. <laughs> itself um, uh, and all that. But, um, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm the better for it. You know, I have pretty good quantitative background because of, of the engineering. Um, and I, I also um, I definitely approach questions, I think, differently than my colleagues. I, you know, I think a lot of ecologists or scientists in general, are, they're, right, they're curious people. Um, they ask questions. And so a lot of my colleagues will be very curious about, um, you know, something they see in the natural world and what causes it and what's the mm -hmm. explanation for it. So they'll, they'll design an experiment to go out and study that, um, to try to, to figure that out. Whereas I think my engineering background has trained me more like this is a problem that needs to be solved. How do we best solve this problem? So I, I tend to be less question driven and more problem driven. And, and that means I tend to work more on methods than I do on any particular natural system. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's a great, it's a great career. Yeah. Both of those techniques are very important. I'll say specifically the la the, the, the way of thinking like an engineer is important in any field that requires computation because you have to have that mindset. Okay. Here's a problem. How do I address it? Here's how I address it. I write some code and you can write that code to address the problem that that's important. I want to touch on something else you said though, because mm -hmm. it's something I, I share with you. Um, college never seemed like much of an idea to me or n much of a something I would even want to do. I mean, I wanted to drop out of high school when I was, you know, in ninth or 10th grade. I hated it. I did not enjoy school. I did not enjoy the way school was done. I did not enjoy sitting in a classroom for eight hours a day. I still don't. I hate classes, hate them. I don't know what it is about the classroom environment, but it does not work for me. It just doesn't. It's not something mm -hmm. I like to do. And I did also didn't have anyone to, to role model. You know, I didn't have anyone that could show me, you know, this is something you do. I didn't necessarily have anyone that said you could do whatever you want, right? Cause maybe that's what I needed to hear. Like you could do whatever you want. So I sort of convinced myself that you, I think this is true for most humans though. You convince yourself that your environment is the thing that sets your expectations. This is very true. Um, that you you tend to and there's a good reason for that in terms of biology 
you know, if you watch your parents, let's say your parents are, are, are drug addicts and they work at Wendy's and they're not very good people, the chances of you growing up and being like that are, are pretty high. Historically, we can see this. Like, there's very few people who grow up in that environment who make it out. One of the biggest burdens, actually, is single-parent households. Like, that is an underappreciated thing in this country, is the effect that a single-parent household has on kids. And you tend to look at your parents and you say, okay, this is how you survive. You know, just like you would in the wild. I, I, I don't know if there's any research to back this up, but this is how I, this is how I feel and this is how I think. You look at your parents and, and you think, well, this is how I survive. I get a job at Wendy's. This is how I survive. This is the way in which I survive. You model after your parents. Your parents know how to find food. Your parents know how to find money. They know how to keep a roof over your head. So you, you, you try to model your life after them. And if you don't have a good role model to teach you the way to model your life, you, you tend to grow up and be a, uh, for lack of a better term, a loser. You tend to not, you know, try to achieve anything. And, I think in science in particular, there's not a lot of role models out there. Even on mainstream, like there's not a lot of people who are going around to underprivileged communities and saying, hey, you could be a scientist. You know, you don't have to be an NBA star. You don't have to be in the NFL. You don't have to go play sports. You know, you, you don't have to work at Wendy's. You could be a scientist. There's not enough right. of that. I don't see it. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's then there's differences in the opportunities that are afforded to people in, in certain situations. Um, and that sort of thing. I, you know, I think if you ask most people, probably most, most kids, especially like draw a scientist for me, right. Mm -hmm. They're probably going to draw a white guy with glasses and a beard in a lab coat. Right. Because that's like the typical image that me. people have of scientists. You just described <laughs> so you, me you, without the lab coat. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I don't wear a lab coat either, but I fit, fit that bill in a lot of ways too. And so, um, you're right. And, and there are a lot of efforts, um, National Science Foundation, et cetera, that are working very hard to, to change that. You know, it'd be, it'd be great if we were all born with the exact same opportunities. I mean, we're, you know, to some extent, we're born with different abilities in different areas, uh, but we're definitely not all born with the same opportunities. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Just hopefully the world becomes a place where um, those that, that work hard are are uh, rewarded and um, those that take advantage of the system are not. Yes, I completely agree. I have tried. Okay, I'll come clean. My high school is a waste. Okay, it, I, I say that. There's a reason I hated it. I hate it because mm -hmm. I don't think that the administration of that place knows how to. In fact, this isn't just them, though. I don't want to blame them. I think this is indicative right. of of education, public education in the United States as a whole. Not many people are very good at doing it. It's hard to keep kids entertained for eight hours a day. It's almost impossible, right? It's a, It almost shouldn't be done. But there's a thing called the Pulsar Search Collaboratory that I encourage any high school kids listening to get involved in. And I had Duncan Lorimer on this podcast, and I had Maura McLaughlin on this podcast. And those are both astrophysicists involved with this Pulsar Search Collaboratory. And what it is, is it's a program that any high school kid can join. You don't have to, you don't have to be at a special school. You don't have to do anything. You can join. You don't have to have a teacher sign off. You can just get involved. And what you do is you analyze real data, from pulsars, real radio astronomy data. And you help them, and you go to Green Bank, West Virginia, during the summer for a couple days. This is funded by the NSF. And you help them do real science. 
And I think it's one of these fantastic, one of these fantastic ways in which you can get kids involved in doing real science and teach them that there's something out there. Um, one of the things that, that I talk about a lot in here is that I used to be a drug addict when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. When I was 12 to 16, I was a useless human being. I was a drug addict. I, I, that's probably associated with the fact that I hate the, um, hate public schooling. Um, because I was, you know, an anarchist during those days. But the point is, um, if something like that existed, I wish I would have known about it. And so hopefully I can disseminate that to people. I tried reaching out to my high school. I said, hey, here's how you get involved. I, I have contacts with these two people. I could get the school set up right away. I could get these kids involved. No response. I've tried multiple times to contact them. No response. So it's not always, you know, you shouldn't feel if you're listening and you're a kid, like it's always on you. Um, you should definitely have people in your corner batting for you. And that, my friends, is something that doesn't exist much. And so we could probably stop talking about that now. I'm curious. Do mm -hmm. you watch or know of Nature is Metal? Have you ever heard of that? I've heard of it. Yeah. Um, but I, I can't say where. I don't know if I saw that on on Reddit, maybe. I'm not sure. I don't know. But but, but um, I figured as an ecologist, uh, it might be something that, that you've heard of. Um, what it is is essentially animals killing other animals. And I don't know uh. why, but <laughs> I am obsessed with Nature is Metal. There's something fundamentally interesting about like predator prey relationships that that gets me you know happy although i don't like yeah. to see it i'm like rooting you know i'm like get away get i want the gazelle to get away and planet earth gives me that same thing i'm like no i don't want him to kill the rabbit um it's funny i always have to pick a side and sometimes i pick the predator and sometimes i pick the prey and it depends generally on cuteness like which one do i find more cute no that makes sense but, you know, life feeds on life that's just the reality yes very true do you ever have to deal with insects? Deal with insects in what way? Like, like, do, in my like house? Th throughout <laughs> your throughout your um, studies as a PhD student and a master's student, uh, I'm not, I don't have a good conceptualization of what a PhD student in ecology does. Okay. So I'm wondering ah, okay. if you've ever had to deal with with insects in any way. Not really. I mean, I um, I was more of a computer guy, right? So that's the move. That's the move. Yeah. yeah. Like, so, uh, you know, ecologists might do anything from sit in front of a computer analyzing data to uh, going out to the African savanna or the deepest, darkest jungle, you know, uh, for months at a time. Um, but so, yeah, I didn't, I, I, but the story I'm trying to tell you is that, that for my, one of my studies in my dissertation, I worked on fire ants but not physically. I worked on, on the distribution and occurrence of fire ants and some questions about them as invasive species and things. But I, I, had never, I had never seen a fire ant at this time. And I went to Florida and I saw fire ants and I was like, well, I want to know what it's like to be stung by a fire ant. So I, you know, I kind of uh, disturbed the nest. And of course, as they do, they boiled out of it and uh, let a couple of them get on my hand. And um, now I know what it feels like to be stung by a fire ant. Um, and that was, that was the extent of my experience. It, I that. sat, this is interesting. When I was like, how old was I? Maybe eight. I don't know. I was at my grandmother's house and I sat on like a, like a population of fire ants. And that was terrible. The worst. I mean, I don't yeah. remember it well cause I was eight and I probably make up, I probably made up most of the memories or feelings that I have when I was eight years old, but, but I remember not enjoying it very much. Yeah. But 
Anyway, Matt Fitzpatrick, I thank you for coming on the show. Is there anything you want to tell the listeners before we let you go? Advertise yeah, I mean, your I, stuff. Yeah, I was gonna say I hope they go uh they go check the app out. Um and uh you know, if if they have a a dramatic response for the first time, I'd I'd like to hear about it for sure. Um always open to suggestions for improvements and that sort of thing. Um and that I hope uh to the extent that it can change minds that uh, people reflect that at the, uh, when they vote. So. Do, do people, this is sort of a question based off of what you just said. Do people reach out to you when they look at the app? Do they say, Hey, your app is really cool. Or, Hey, your app, you know, climate science is fake. Do you get that? Ever? I've gotten a, a little of both. Um, not, not a lot though, but I've gotten a little of both. Um, you know, most people don't go to the trouble of digging up my email address, right. um, but a few have and, and, most of those have been on the uh, the fringes, I would say, in mm. either direction, yep. to be honest. Um, uh, yeah, but auto-delete's a beautiful thing. Yes, so. I had people tell, I had people reach out to me all the time telling me space is fake, so I get that. But anyway, we're done. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Dr. Matt Fitzpatrick, we're out. Thanks for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please... Rate the podcast five stars on iTunes or whatever platform you use. It really helps us grow. It helps get eyes on the show. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram, at Brendan Drackler. Thank you for listening, people. 